thank you so much again for tuning in. This is your host, Madam Butterfly, and you are tuned into Frequency Bay. Um, so I am going to hop right on into the second part of the documentary that I'm going over uh, called The Century of Self, um, currently in part two. And this one's called The Engineering of Consent. Uh, where we will, where it looks like we'll be starting um, around World War Two, Hitler, Nazis, Holocaust. Um, but I'm going to shut up and move over and go ahead and uh, get this party started. Let's say a word about dreams. We all have thoughts, which we never knew we had. They are too uncomfortable, too incompatible with our adult self to be remembered. Yet they are often disturbing, rumbling under the surface like lava in a volcano. The dream is the royal road to these thoughts. The royal road to the unconscious. This is the story of how Sigmund Freud's ideas about the unconscious mind were used by those in power in post-war America to try and control the masses. Politicians and planners came to believe that Freud was right to suggest that hidden deep within all human beings were dangerous and irrational desires and fears. They were convinced that it was the unleashing of these instincts that had led to the barbarism of Nazi Germany. To stop it ever happening again, they set out to find ways to control this hidden enemy within the human mind. At the heart of the story are Sigmund Freud's daughter, Anna, and his nephew, Edward Bernays, who had invented the profession of public relations. Ideas were used by the US government, big business, and the CIA to develop techniques to manage and control the minds of the American people. Those in power believed that the only way to make democracy work and create a stable society was to repress the savage barbarism that lurked just under the surface of normal American life. The story begins in the middle of the fierce fighting of the Second World War. Fighting intensified, the American army was faced by an extraordinary number of mental breakdowns among its troops. 49% of all soldiers evacuated from combat were sent back because they suffered from mental problems. In desperation, the army turned to the new ideas of psychoanalysis. They made a film record of the experiment using hidden cameras. It says here on your record that uh, you had headaches in the Jack film. Yes, sir. Uh, I believe that your profession is called nostalgia. In other words, homesickness. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. It was induced when shortly before the war. I received the picture of my sweetheart. time that anyone had paid such attention to the feelings and anxieties of ordinary people. 
at the heart of the experiment were a number of refugee psychoanalysts from Central Europe. They worked with American psychiatrists to guide and shape the project. When I first came to America, I worked in the psychiatric service with soldiers trying to rehabilitate them. And I traveled in the train from the East Coast to the West Coast. I was enormously curious what goes on in all of those little towns that the train is passing. After my years in the army, I knew exactly what everybody was doing in the little towns. Because I, I saw so many people who came from there, and I understood their aspirations, their disappointments, and so forth. So it was as if somebody invited me to a privileged tour in the, into the inner soul of America. I'm not too deliberate with some questions. I do believe you. Um, a display of emotion is sometimes very helpful. Yeah, I hope so, sir. Sure, I guess it off the chest. Well, sir, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm very much in love with my sweetheart. She has been the one person that gave me a sense of importance. Is that through her cooperation with me? We were able to surmount so many obstacles. Take it easy now, just talk to Psychoanalysts use techniques developed by Freud to take the men back into their past. They became convinced that the breakdowns were not the direct result of fighting. The stress of combat had merely triggered old childhood memories. These were memories of the men's own violent feelings and desires, which they had repressed because they were too frightening. Let's go back. When was it to the psychoanalysts, it was overwhelming proof of Freud's theory that underneath human beings were driven by primitive, irrational forces. World War II was a major shattering experience because I discovered the enormous role of the irrational in the lives of most people. Now that I can say, that I learned that the ratio between the irrational and the rational in America is very much in favor of the irrational. That there's much greater unhappiness, much more suffering, much more. A, a, a sadder country than one would imagine it from, from, the, advertis from the advertisements that you read. A much more problematic country. In the Second World War was celebrated as a triumph of democracy. But in private, many policymakers were worried about the implications of the analysis of the soldiers. It seemed to show that underneath every American were irrational, violent drives. What had happened in Germany seemed to bear this out. The complicity of so many ordinary Germans in mass killings during the war showed just how easily these forces could break through overwhelmed democracy. Planners and policymakers had been convinced by their experiences during World War II that human beings could act very irrationally because of this sort of teeming and raw and unpredictable emotionality, um, the, the kind of chaos that lived at the, at the, at the base of human personality could, uh, in fact, 
infect the society, social institutions, to such a point that the society itself would become sick. That's what they believe happened in Germany, in which the irrational, the anti-democratic, went wild. It was a vision of, of human nature as incredibly destructive, and they were terrified that Americans would in fact behave that way, or were capable of behaving that way, and they wanted to avoid a rerun of that. So what is needed is a human being that can internalize democratic values so that they are not shaken with the storm. And psychoanalysis carried in it the promise that it can be done. It opened up new vistas as to how the inner structure of the human being can be changed so that he becomes a more vital free supporter and maintainer of democracy. Psychoanalysts were convinced they not only understood these dangerous forces, but they knew how to control them too. They would use their techniques to create democratic individuals, because democracy left to itself failed to do this. The source of this idea was not only Sigmund Freud, but his youngest daughter, Anna. She had fled with her father to London before the outbreak of war. And after he died, Anna Freud became the acknowledged leader of the world psychoanalytic movement. She saw her job as to fulfill her father's dream of making his ideas accepted throughout the world. At the center of the Freud movement stood Tante Anna because she managed to work herself into that position. She was recognized as that, and not just because she was the daughter. She worked, she worked on that. She was rather forbidding. She was not, to me, a warm person, not an aunt you, can, you mm. could kiss or put your arms around. Not at all. And her whole life rotated around the spreading of psychoanalysis. Freud himself had seen the role of psychoanalysis as allowing people to understand their unconscious drives. But Anna Freud believed it was possible to teach individuals how to control these inner forces. She had come to believe this through analyzing children, above all the children of her close friend, Dorothy Burlingham. Dorothy Burlingham was an American millionaires who in the 1920s fled a failed marriage and brought her children to Anna Freud in Vienna. They were suffering terrible anxieties and aggression. But Anna Freud was convinced she could free them from this by changing the world around them. She thought that she could come in and um, into their environment, essentially, because they were children, you see. They didn't have independent lives of their own. She could go talk to the parents or the mother. Uh, she could go to the schools, she could influence their real world, the actual external world, to change their lives and to, uh, to help them. And to change them as people? I think that was uh, part of what uh, her idea was, is that she felt that she could change them. From her analysis of the Birmingham children, Anna Freud developed a theory of how to help them control their inner drives. She believed that if, as well as psychotherapy, they were also encouraged to adapt to a good family and social environment, then the conscious part of their mind, the ego, would be
be strengthened in its struggle to control the unconscious. Anna Freud's aim was simply to help the children. But it was always the psychoanalyst who decided what was the right environment and the appropriate behaviour for the children. And often as not, this reflected the social mores of the time. In my father's uh, case, they were uh, concerned that he would be a homosexual. And so a lot of their efforts went into uh, preventing or trying to stop my father from becoming a homosexual. Whether or not he would have or did or, you know, is, is you know, it's unknown to me. Why did they want to stop him? Because they felt it was abnormal. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a normal uh, way to develop. They wanted to have him... Lemonade Renters Insurance covers your million dollar t-shirt, million dollar sunglasses, million dollar MP3 player, and the other stuff you spent develop along lines that society recognized to be normal because if they didn't then you're going to be under the control of forces that you don't understand that you're not even aware of there's absolutely nothing wrong with being homosexual it sounds like these people are just a, a tad on the homophobic side which is weird but anyway The analysis seemed to be a great success, and in the 30s, the Burlingham children had returned to America. They settled down to happy married lives in the suburbs. What they didn't realize was that their experience was about to become a template for a giant social experiment to control the inner mental life of the American population. In 1946, President Truman signed the National Mental Health Act. It had been born directly out of the wartime discoveries by psychoanalysts that millions of Americans who had been drafted suffered hidden anxieties and fears. The aim of the act was to deal with this invisible threat to society. Shocked by the appalling percentage of the emotionally unstable revealed by the World War II draft figures, Congress in 1946 passed the National Mental Health Act which recognized for the first time that mental illness was a national problem. Keenly aware of the tremendous problems ahead is Dr. Robert H. Felix, director of the vast new project. A primary objective of the National Mental Health Program is to increase our fund of scientific knowledge about mental health and about mental illness. We're not doing this. Why? Because there are all too few skilled mental health workers. Two of the principal architects of the act were the Menninger brothers, Carl and Will. Will had run the wartime psychotherapy experiments, and now he and his brother began to train hundreds of new psychiatrists. The Menningers were convinced that it would be possible to apply Anna Freud's ideas on a wide scale, and to adults as well as children. The psychiatrist's job would be to teach ordinary Americans how to control their unconscious drives. Psychoanalysis could be used to make a better society. They said psychoanalytic thinking could make for the betterment of society because you could change the way the mind functioned and you could take the ways in which people did hurtful things to themselves and others and alter them by enlarging their understanding. And this was the vision psychoanalysis brought. You could really change people. 
that you can really change people. And you can change them almost in limitless ways. In the late 40s, a vast project began in America to apply the ideas of psychoanalysis to the masses. Psychological guidance centers were set up in hundreds of towns. They were staffed by psychiatrists who believed it was their job to control the hidden forces inside the minds of millions of ordinary Americans. Yes, uh, I need something done. I need some help. Did you have any particular teachers that you'd like? Sort? I liked all my teachers except one. I remember. What was the trouble with this one? I don't know. She just scared me most of the time. Holler at me and I'd run outside and vomit. I hate my brother. Loathe Despise him. At the same time, thousands of counselors were trained to apply psychoanalysis to marriage guidance. And social workers were sent out to visit people's homes and advise on the psychological structure of family life. Behind all this was the fundamental idea of Anna Freud's, that if people were encouraged to conform to the accepted patterns of family and social life, then their ego would be strengthened. They would be able to control the dangerous forces within them. When your emotions control your actions, it affects not only yourself, but the people around you. And if this sort of flare-up is repeated often, it might lead to a permanently warped personality. You can control the fire of your emotions so that your personality becomes more pleasant. So we expect that someone who's been through that experience will be much more insightful, much more understanding, and a much better regulated person. And what happens to the And regulation includes being able to let go, as it were, to enjoy a football game or a soccer game. A more understanding, yes, rational, but also appropriately emotional person. The regulatory aspects of the human mind would really be in charge instead of, instead of being overwhelmed by our passions and by our darker impulses that one would be master or mistress of one's own passions. They just felt that the road to happiness was in adapting to the external world in which they lived. That people could be uncrippled from their own neurotic conflicts and impulses, that they would not engage in self-destructive behavior, that they would, in fact, adapt to the reality about them. They never questioned the reality. They never questioned that it might itself be a source of evil or something to which you could not adapt without, uh, without compromise or without suffering or without exploiting yourself in some way. So there was this fit with the politics of the day. And a balance of emotions is important to a well-rounded personality. But it was only the beginning of the rise to power of psychoanalysis in America. Psychoanalysts were about to move into big business and use their techniques not just to create model citizens, but model consumers. Last week's episode showed how Freud's American nephew, Edward Bernays, had been the first to convince American corporations that they could sell products by connecting them with people's unconscious feelings. 
But now, a group of psychoanalysts are going to take what Bernays had begun and invent a whole range of techniques to get inside and manage the unconscious mind of the consumer. They were led by Ernest Dichter. Dichter had practiced next door to Freud in Vienna. He had come to America and set up the Institute for Motivational Research in an old mansion north of New York. This is the Institute for Motivational Research, a place devoted to the intriguing business of finding out why people behave as they do, why they buy as they do, why they respond to advertising as they do. And this is Dr. Ernest Dichter. We don't go out and ask directly, uh, why do you buy, why don't you? What we try to do instead is to understand the total personality, the self-image of the customer. We use all the resources of modern social sciences. It opens up some stimulating psychological techniques for selling any new product. Like the other psychoanalysts, Dichter believed that American citizens were fundamentally irrational beings. They could not be trusted. Their real reasons for buying products were rooted in unconscious desires and feelings. And Dicto wanted to find ways to uncover what he called the secret self of the American consumer. He was trying to get out of people's mind the unconscious motivations that they have for purchasing. Uh, these could be sexual, they could be psychological, they could be sociological, they could be a demand for status, a demand for recognition. There were things that people couldn't verbalize or wouldn't verbalize because they were too secret to them. They were too much a part of their nature and they, were, they would be embarrassed. They would be embarrassed if they came out and said things like this. He would interview people, but not ask them direct questions, but let them talk freely like you do in psychoanalysis. And that was his background. And so he said, why can't we have a group therapy session about products? All right? And so Dichter built this room up above his garage, and he said we can have psychoanalysis of products. They can actually act out and verbalize their wants and needs. What we're going to do is try a couple of these uh, salad dressings. Well, let's see what happens. Here's our typical housewife. She doesn't follow the instructions. And they could be observed and watched, and other people could comment, and they could talk about it, and everybody could join in. He was the first to do this. This was absolutely the first thing that was ever done. And he had a movie projector up there where you could show advertisements and things like that, and people could react to them. And he invented the whole technique for mining the unconscious about the hidden psychological wants that people had about products. This became the focus group. It worked! Victor's breakthrough came with a focus group study he did for Betty Crocker Foods. Like many food manufacturers in the early 50s, they had invented a new range of instant convenience foods. But although consumers had told market researchers they would welcome the idea, in fact, they were refusing to buy them. The worst problem was the Betty Crocker cake mix. Dicta did a series of focus groups where housewives free associated about the cake mix. He concluded that they felt unconscious guilt with the new image being promoted of ease and convenience. In other words, he understood that the barrier to the consumption of the product was 
housewife's feeling of guilt about using it. They basically, on one hand, wanted to make it easy for themselves, but they felt guilty about it. So what you've got to do in those circumstances is remove the barrier, barrier being guilt. The way you do that is to give the housewife a greater sense of participation. And how do you do that? By adding an egg. Nigga. Dicta told Betty Crooker to put an instruction on the packet that the housewife should add an egg. It would be an unconscious symbol, he said, but the housewife mixing in her own eggs is a gift to her husband, and so would lessen the guilt. Betty Crocker did it, and the sales soared. My cake is ready. The consumer may have basic needs that the consumer himself or herself doesn't fully understand. You have to know what those needs are in order to fully exploit the consumer. Is it wrong to give people what they want by taking away their defenses, helping rem remove their defenses? It seems so much longer than last year. It is. Nearly four inches longer in some models. Victor's success led to a rush by corporations and advertising agencies to employ psychoanalysts. They became known as the Depth Boys, and they promised to show companies how to make millions by connecting their products with people's hidden desires. Dictor himself became a millionaire, famous for inventing slogans like a tiger in your tank. Even the marketing of the Barbie doll came from a children's focus group. And so it goes. But Dicta was convinced that this was far more than just selling. Like Anna Freud, he believed that the environment could be used to strengthen the human personality. And products have the power both to sate inner desires and give people a feeling of common identity with those around them. It was a strategy for creating a stable society. Dicta called it the strategy of desire. To understand a stable citizen, you have to know that modern man quite often tries to work off his frustrations by spending on self-gratification. Modern man is eternally ready to fill out his self-image by purchasing products which complement it. If you identify yourself with a product, it can have a therapeutic value. It improves your self-image and you become a more secure person and you have suddenly this confidence of going out in the world and doing what you want successfully. Bernard's belief that that would then improve the whole of our society and become the best society on this planet. By the early 50s, the ideas of psychoanalysis had penetrated deep into American life. Psychoanalysts themselves became rich and powerful. Many had consulting rooms overlooking Central Park in New York. Politicians and famous writers like Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams became their patients. They were seeking not just help, but to understand the hidden roots of human behavior. We were sought after. Washington was interested in what we think. You know, the, the, the important 
important writers, important politicians were undergoing psychoanalysis. Of course, we had, we had waiting lists because there were so many patients that wanted to be analyzed. So it, it gave us a little bit of a swellhead. And as the psychoanalyst ideas took hold in America, a new elite began to emerge in politics, social planning, and in business. What linked this elite was the assumption that the masses were fundamentally irrational. To make a free market democracy like America work, one had to use psychological techniques to control mass irrationality. They actually believed that this elite was necessary because individual citizens were not capable, if left alone, of being democratic citizens. The elite was necessary in order to create the conditions that would produce individuals capable of behaving as a, uh, a good consumer and also behaving as a democratic citizen. They didn't see their activities as anti-democratic, as undermining the capacity of individual citizens for democracy, quite the opposite. They understood that they were creating uh, the conditions for uh, democracy's survival in the future. Anna Freud had never intended that her ideas be used in such a way. But she happily accepted the rise to power as psychoanalysis in America. She remained in England, living with Dorothy Burlingham. On the surface, it was an idyllic life. She and Dorothy had bought a weekend cottage on the Suffolk coast. And in the summers, Dorothy's children came from America to visit with the grandchildren. But underneath, things were going badly wrong. Both Bob and Mabby Burlingham, who Anna Freud had analysed in the 1930s, had suffered personal breakdowns, and their marriages were collapsing. Bob was drinking heavily, and Mabby suffered terrible anxieties. The real reasons for the visits to England were yet more analysis with Anna Freud. The problem was that it didn't look very good, did it? Because here you have somebody who's having nervous breakdowns and uh, is, is uh, having alcoholic binges. And uh, this is not exactly, <laughs> doesn't really sit well. Um, well, you know, from a humane standpoint, obviously this is not desirable. You know, you want to help these people. But it also had the wider ramifications of everybody in, in, in analysis, in analytic circles, knew that Bob and Mabby were uh, guinea pigs. They were the living proof that this was a wonderful process. It was very much swept under the rug. It really it didn't get out. I mean, these people had such, uh, their, their power and influence was such uh, that, you know, you were very careful. Anna Freud was a very powerful person, and um, you were the grandchildren, and uh, she knew a great deal more than you did about what went on in your parents' lives and so forth. It was not something you were going to tangle with, and you were a product of the whole situation. Uh, but at the same time, we all knew that something was really out of whack. As she grew older, she became more and more important, didn't she? Politically and scientifically, but she didn't know when to stop. She was a bit too righteous. Uh, what she did was always the thing, and she was never, to my, my knowledge, acknowledged that she could make a mistake or be wrong.
Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in with me today. This has been Frequency Bay, and I am your host, Random Butterfly. Um, I wanted to go ahead and end on that note. Um, we're about 30 minutes in, so we've got about 20 minutes left, and I'm thinking that, um, I'm thinking that probably around the end of the day is when I'll finish this. Um, I wanted to end on that note because, um, this, this woman, um, the, 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 the daughter of such a prominent man, um, I know that a lot of times, or it's very easy to, when you come from a bloodline of a person who's done something so extraordinary, um, feel as though you need to walk in their shoes and continue their legacy, which is something that she's trying to do. And in the same breath, I, it sounds like there's a bit of narcissism happening on her part in relationship to what she's trying to, um, I guess, accomplish. Um, but again, thank you so much for, for listening in with me. This is a really great, um, a really great documentary, a documentary series in regards to the ways in which things can start off with really good intent and eventually end up in the wrong hands and turn into something that's completely and totally not what it was meant to be in the first place. Um, but again, uh, I thank you for joining me today and I'll go ahead and sign off. Uh, Madam Butterfly out. Thank you.